0: Welcome, market participants, to another Three Things in Credit. I'm Van Hesser, Chief Strategist at KBRA. Each week, we bring you three things impacting credit markets that we think you should know about. The other day, as I thought about my intro this week, I came up with the Fed is lining up half-point hikes and risk assets are better, I said incredulously. Well, I guess my incredulity was spot on. Interesting times we live in. This week, our three things are, one, bonds are back. It's been painful, but entry points make sense again. Two, labor markets in focus. There's more than just a low unemployment rate to this story. And three, Fed tightening cycles. Our research shows a different narrative that you'll want to hear. Let's dig a bit deeper. So amidst a historically poor record of performance in Q1, investors can take some comfort in the fact that entry points into credit have become a whole lot more attractive. Gone, at least for now, are the days when U.S. stocks were mentioned more often than not as the most attractive and most defensive investment alternative. Those were the days, through much of the pandemic period, when investment-grade bonds were offering yields around or even through 2%. Today, IG yields have bounced to 4.4%, some 290 basis points above the average dividend yield of the S&P 500. You have to go back to 2009 to find a differential that wide. Now, this is all very consistent with our normalization theme. Rates have reset and risk premia have reset. For context, over the past 20 years, the average yield to worst for IG is 4.1%. So we've spiked back to where credit starts to make sense once again, especially for investors looking to de-risk. And with investor sentiment skewing towards the most bearish stance since 2009, IG should be a beneficiary of a risk-off orientation. In the most recent investor sentiment survey conducted by the American Association of Individual Investors, 59% fell into the bearish camp where expectations are that stock prices will fall over the next six months. That's the highest level of pessimism since March of 2009 and the 10th highest reading in history of the survey, which began in 1987. The average bearish reading over the life of the survey is 31%. So maybe, just maybe, the death of the 60-40 portfolio has been greatly exaggerated. All right, on to our second thing, digging into the labor market. So I've been reminded time and time again that this period, this cycle, truly is different. I know, I know, those words have buried many an investor or analyst. But think about it for a second. Demand has been driven by extraordinary stimulus and altered by the availability or lack thereof goods and services. That demand, heavy on the goods side, has overwhelmed and disrupted supply. And super-accommodative monetary conditions have fueled asset inflation. And now, all of that is in the process of correcting. And yes, the pandemic has never quite left the rearview mirror. It has left a mark behaviorally on many of us, and it continues to materially impact China, which in turn impacts global economic growth. So in taking stock of the labor market, we want to test everything we think we know, starting with the overall condition. With unemployment sitting at 3.6%, the market is tight, but it's actually tighter than that. Economists at Goldman Sachs make a convincing case that what they call a jobs-workers gap is a better measure of tightness. Calculated by adding open positions to those that are employed and subtracting the labor force, the jobs-workers gap is the highest it's been in the post-war period, which suggests wage pressure will continue to build. Reducing that gap without an accompanying recession will be challenging. In fact, Goldman points out that there has never been a decline in the jobs workers gap of more than 0.6% of the labor force. That would be approximately 1 million out of the current gap of 5.3 million that hasn't been associated with the recession. So at the risk of stating the obvious, how much to tighten financial conditions will be a challenging one for the Fed knowing that the risks of a policy error, recession, is significant. Another side of the jobs-workers gap is the challenge of fixing one of its components, the size of the labor force. The number of workers today remains below where it was in February 2020 and 4.5 million below where it should be, according to the San Francisco Fed. The central bank branch attributes the shortfall to pandemic fear, increased family care responsibilities, early retirement decisions, and lower immigration. Researchers led by Stanford University believe that the labor force is not going to bounce back due to what they call long social distancing, which picks up some of what the San Francisco Fed alluded to. With the FOMC clearly moving its priority to fighting inflation rather than preserving economic growth, one could reasonably expect a weakening in employment levels from today's levels. But that will take time, in our opinion. With nearly two jobs available for every person looking, that is a luxury the central bank enjoys, for now. All right, on to our third thing, tightening cycle misconceptions. Intuitively, it's not a leap to believe that a central bank hiking rates and running down its balance sheet will cool demand. Moreover, with each tightening cycle, there is always the risk that the central bank will overshoot in its policy response, triggering a recession. So when it is clear that the Fed needs to tighten, as it is today, economic historians are quick to pull out the statistics that show that in the vast majority of cases, a tightening cycle ends in recession, and that's never a good thing for risk assets, right? So we asked the question, what actually happens to credit in a Fed tightening cycle? And the answer might surprise you. We asked Harry Mameski, professor at Columbia Business School, who consults on KBRA Altman in our data analytics business, to look into the issue. The first thing we did was define a relevant tightening cycle. We settled on four Fed funds hikes following at least four quarters of unchanged rates. That's a tighter universe than what you typically see, but one that we think makes the most sense. That adds up to six cycles over the past 40 years. And what we found is that there is little evidence to suggest that the Fed tightening inevitably plunge economies into recession. While short-term interest rates go up during Fed tightening cycles, longer-term rates often do not move much. Economic growth slows, but not precipitously, and sometimes not at all. Credit spreads can widen or tighten during these cycles, and the stock market seems to do quite well. The key to understanding these facts is to recognize that the Fed only begins to tighten when the economy is doing well, and then it does its best to achieve price stability while not standing in the way of economic prosperity. The lag from when the Fed starts to tighten and when credit deteriorates can be substantial and might involve additional shocks. The point is, the Fed tightening monetary policy is something investors should take into consideration but it is far from a sell signal. For the complete report, go to our website, KBRA.com, sign up for free, and we will get you the report. So there you have it. Three things in credit. One, bonds are back. The correction has restored attractive entry points. Two, labor markets in focus. What will make the labor force grow That ultimately drives economic growth. And three, Fed tightening cycles. Don't lose sight of how long it takes for a recession to appear. As always, thanks for joining us. Don't forget to check in on KBRA.com for our latest research and ratings reports. See you next week.